Thank you for joining me for reading of excerpts from my first collection of short stories, The Last Tortilla and Other Stories. This is Sergio Troncoso. And I, I wrote The Last Tortilla and Other Stories uh, in general because I wanted to depict uh, Chicano and Latino characters in general as mental beings, beings that have important philosophical questions and discuss and, and debate important moral questions. And I wanted in many ways to counteract the stereotypes that I often found in American literature on Chicanos and Latinos, um, you know, describing them as mostly physical beings and not beings that could contribute to, you know, the important American cultural and philosophical debates that we have. Uh, but each story in this collection has a different genesis. And um, the last, for example, the Abuelita, uh, is a story I wrote, the very first story I wrote. It's about my grandmother and Dolores Rivero, and I w did not want people to forget her. You know, she was such an important uh, person in my life, and she was a, a, a survivor of the Mexican um, Revolution, and she had shot and killed two men who had attempted to rape her. And so she was a caraja, you know, a very hard human being, who also was had a very sympathetic heart and she you know taught me to fight back and to fight for what I wanted and to never give up and I did not want people to forget her so I wrote this story and it was immediately published when I was a graduate student at Yale and then and in many ways it launched me on my writing career other stories uh, most of the stories in this collection the last tortilla and other stories are also are set in the Mexican-American border of El Paso and Isleta. Uh, a Rock Trying to Be a Stone is a story about three boys who are playing a game. The game turns dangerous, and suddenly each boy has to make a choice um, that reveals the, their character. And so it's a story describing and exploring how character comes forth during a crisis. Um, other stories, uh, for example or remembering possibilities. Uh, if you want to find out how I first kissed my wife <laughs> at Harvard, um, you know, read Remembering Possibilities. It's a story about this Chicano at Harvard, so it's autobiographical in that sense. And he falls in love with this Americana who is uh, excellent in Spanish, just like my wife. And, uh, and so their first kiss along the Charles River is depicted in the story. Um, but it's also a story about um, the power of storytelling. It's, uh, it's a story that pays homage to Scheherazade and a thousand and one Arabian Nights and how storytelling in many ways can save your life. Uh, another story in, in this collection is called The Last Tortilla, which is the title story. And it's a, it focuses on this family, the Marquez family, and the mother has died. And so the, the family is struggling to stay together as a family. And what I wanted to explore is the ontology of motherhood in many ways. How a mother and a selfless human being in a family brings this family together. And without this person, without this mother, you know, what happens to this family? Can they still remain a family in, in not just in name, but in, in, in reality? And so it's, it's exploring that question of how they are struggling to stay together, stay related to each other, even though the one who usually was the link to all of them 
is dead. Um, another story that uh, I've gotten a lot of emails from all across the world about is Day of the Dead. And Day of the Dead is a story about Lupe Perez, a Mexican maid who crosses the border from Juarez and works for a family in El Paso. And it's really a story about trying to focus our eyes in many ways on people we often forget, people that too often are vilified in the American media, you know, Mexican immigrants who are coming here to the United States simply to find a better life for themselves, to fulfill their dreams, and how some in America, sometimes some Chicanos, are um, very much against them, and sometimes some Americanos uh, can can look at who these Mexican immigrants are and and appreciate them, you know, for the the, the great human beings that they are. So the two stories that I am reading from today are first punching chickens, and the second one will be Angie Luna, a love story. So this first story, uh, punching chickens, that I'll be reading from my collection is in fact true. Uh, it is the first job I had uh, carrying live chickens from trucks and my brother and I uh, did this job and when we were 13 and 14 years old and so this this story focuses on Manny Padilla who's 13 and he makes a mistake of letting his mother decide his summer job. There were three 18-wheelers backed up against a huge warehouse. Three metal ramps dropped from the back of these trucks, more or less in the direction of the warehouse. The warehouse itself was like a cavern, dark, eerily quiet, and spooky. The air was, was thick inside, as if the shadows were somewhere between being nothing and becoming black gelatin. The cages and the smell, that's what I noticed first. Hundreds and hundreds of small cages all in neat rows, planks on the floor separating each row of cages, and a horrible smell of feathers and chicken shit and dust everywhere. This impossibly thick air, a stench that made me gag at first, yet after the first hour, I didn't smell it anymore. I also remember that, before we started, when the warehouse was quiet, the feathers and pieces of feathers dangling from the wire mesh seemed even delicate. We were to unload the semis and carry the chickens to the warehouse and put them in the cages, two in each cage. We were to unload and carry chickens. A few men climbed into a truck. I stood with Pepe and Carlos and a few others outside. Then we started to work. The warehouse was gloomy and quiet, but the inside of the truck, this long, suffocating tunnel, was a riotous chaos of flying feathers. The chickens were inside wire mesh racks. Those unloading flung open a door, grabbed whatever chicken legs were nearby, and yanked the shrieking animals out, a pair at a time, and handed them to us upside down. We took a pair with one hand, waited in this wretched din in half-light, and grabbed another pair with the other hand, and carried them out. It was a damn good thing that Pepe was in front of me. At least I could see what to do a few seconds before I descended into this madness. The claws! My God, I saw them! These ugly, yellow, scaly claws and legs! You had to grab them, keep them from tearing at your hands! Why didn't we have gloves? 
Why, some of these guys were wearing gloves. When you were carrying them, the first time I carried them, you focus on these powerful claws and legs, how they'd kick away from you, how they'd scratch and rip your flesh if you didn't grab them just right. It was all a matter of half inches of keeping these little evil manic claws from reaching a finger or the fleshy part between your thumb and your index finger. I got careless only once, when I was so tired I didn't care anymore. This yellow claw from the depths of hell curled itself around my thumb and squeezed it until I thought it would snap off. After that, the shock of this awful pain flushed out just enough energy and will to carry me through the final hour. Down the ramp we went, two dangerous screeching chickens in each hand. Their heads, these quavery masses of eyes and red flesh and beaks, pecking away at our knees and thighs whenever we dared to drop our outstretched arms. I think it might have been easier to carry snakes for a living. I hated seeing these spasmodic upside-down chicken heads stretching to puncture my flesh. I imagined once that they reached my groin and pecked out my penis and my huevos and kept pecking until they got to my gut and my eyes and my brain until I was just a pecked out piece of human meat surrounded by thousands of nervous, dirty white chickens. I think that was about the time I smashed a pair of chicken heads against a warehouse wall when no one was looking. Well, almost no one. Reuben was right behind me, and that's when he grinned his stupid grin. Maybe he hated the chickens as much as I did. Maybe he just knew que ya me iba también a la chingada. Maybe I was on my first joy ride to hell and back, and it was fun to watch. My first four chickens in hands, I followed Pepe to the cages. The birds squawked and tried to yank free. Their heads swiveled wildly. Their bodies, grayish and yellowy underneath their chicken legs, lurched up in spasms, like the bad end of shredded electric wire. I could see their butts. I'd realized I'd be looking at chicken butts a whole day. Some of these horrible chickens were shitting in midair. Maybe I'd lose a little control too if some giant bastard grabbed me by my ankles and hoisted me upside down to God knows where. Maybe I'd smell the barbecue sauce too. A drop of chicken shit had already smeared one of my sneakers. Ay chingada! I couldn't get the damn chickens into these cages. They squawked even louder as I lifted them up to the open mesh door and contorted their feathery bodies, swiping at my stomach in a crazed fury. It was awful. That first time when I felt I was gripping my way one cliff of shit after another was the most awful. How was I going to do this for hour after hour? I almost dropped my four chickens right there. I almost dropped them and walked home. Fortunately, Pepe was right next to me and probably noticed the terror and anger in my eyes. Without saying a word, he took the two chickens from my right hand, found an open cage door next to him, and punched the fuckers home. Their little bodies twisted horribly, unbelievably through the door. Yet, like old tires, they pop back up and ran circles inside the cage. My first punch almost made me feel good again. Pepe winked at me, and I almost smiled back. It took me about half an hour and, ha and half a dozen trips back to the semi before I started to turn around again, before I started to ignore what these chickens did in their panic. They simply became pieces of dangerous meat 
I had to deal with for a few long minutes at a time. I didn't give a damn about the chickens, and I'm sure they weren't in love with me either. My arms were already becoming sore. My hands were turning yellow. The scaly skin on these chicken feet was rubbing itself into my flesh. This yellow slime mixed with dirt. Ijola! My hands stunk. It was horrible, like the smell of a roast, rusty open can of tuna abandoned in the refrigerator for years. A tide of vomit surged up my throat but splashed back into my stomach. I kept my hands away from my mouth and my nose. I would never eat chicken again. I remember that after three hours, my arms suddenly started dropping immediately to my sides whenever I punched in another two pairs of chickens. My arms and my shoulders, I couldn't control them completely anymore. For a few minutes right before lunch, my right shoulder became numb and I had the sensation that it glowed brightly as if some madman had jabbed a blowtorch into my muscles and revved up the heat for good measure. I shook it back to life Time after time, my arms and my shoulders would drop listlessly next to me, exhausted and inert. Yet just as I left the sun behind and entered this loud, clamped, cramped tunnel of flying feathers, I forced my hands and my arms to reach up again, to grab onto these animals, as if they were saving me from a fall into a bed of razors. I fought back a blinding pain. Why did I do it? Why did I keep doing it? The whole thing seems crazy to me now. I wasn't thinking then. I couldn't think. I remember that I felt ashamed of my weakness. I remember that I stared at these old men, these viejitos, and they were going back and forth up the ramp into the truck and back to the cages, like machines, four chickens at a time. Their faces were stoic and hard. Their pace was sometimes even faster than mine. <clears throat> their muscles, old, decrepit, sinewy muscles, seemed oiled with sweat, stronger at each turn, packed with a deep reservoir of power that I didn't have. Work begat power, which begat more work, four horrible chickens at a time. I wasn't about to quit, not now, just one more time, dear God, just one more time, but I would not quit now. As soon as someone said it was lunchtime, as soon as a chain of chickens and men stopped just as suddenly as it had started, I deflated like a punctured inner tube. I could barely move my arms, and even squeezing my hands into fists seemed painful. I wanted simply to chop off my arms off. When I carried my bag lunch to, to the trees where some of us were sitting, my fingers quivered and would not close tightly around the paper bag. I was afraid I would drop it, I was afraid they would know I couldn't do it. More than anything else, I was ashamed of this weakness inside of me that screamed to burst into the empty cotton fields. But I did not do anything. I did not show them any pain. When they smiled and asked where I was from, only then did my heart begin to break away from the agony of my body. I remember that that first hour after we ate our lunch, that first hour back to work was brutal. My muscles would not work. I could not move my arms. I felt that God himself had severed the connection between my brain and my arms. We were walking back to the semi and I was panicking. 
My God, just one chicken in each hand. That's all I had to do. Just one horrible little chicken this time. What's wrong with me? My arms, I needed new arms. There was also all too suddenly this piercing pain across my lower back. I had just been sitting down, eating my lunch. I should have felt better now. I should have been ready, but my body... Now as I walked, I couldn't even stand straight, or so I thought. My spine seemed about to snap. One wrong step in this delicate balance between my back and my hips and my legs would implode like a termite-eaten shack collapsing onto itself. I remember that when I grabbed my first two chickens after lunch, the guy unloading handed them to me around my thighs. I simply could not lift my arms. He said nothing, quickly grabbed another pair for the next guy, and I walked down the ramp, the chicken heads going to town on my knees. I didn't care. I just didn't want to collapse. I just wanted to get it done. I remember that each step of my sneakers, each step into the soft chicken shed on the floor seemed a glorious victory. I was a tank trampling through chicken mud. I would not quit now. I found an open cage and swung my arms over in a clumsy arc, it seemed, and smashed the chickens through the hole. After every trip, for a while at least, my arms felt better and returned to me, for a while at least, until the end. I did finish and I did not faint. In many ways the claw that nearly tore my thumb in half, that greedy yellow claw saved me. I woke up, I went back, and again, until the semi was empty and they were turning us away. The sun had already set. At first I couldn't believe there were no more chickens. I had this wild desire to rush into the truck and see for myself that it was absolutely quiet. But I didn't. As soon as my mind realized that we had stopped, as soon as I knew it was over, I needed to focus on standing up. I think my legs were shaking, but I'm not sure. I tried to be calm, and I waited quietly next to the truck, unsure about what my body would do next. I imagined that I suddenly found myself in this dark, haunted house, which threatened, among other things, simply to disappear in a cold, empty space. But nobody paid any attention to me, and I was grateful for that. Pepe sat next to me, leaned against a truck tire just as he had when we first arrived, and closed his eyes. He seemed peacefully asleep. I didn't see Carlos again, until we were inside the truck on our way home. One of the last things I remember about that day, my first day of work, was that when El Guero handed me my $15, I didn't even look at it. I stuffed the crisp new bills into my jeans and walked away and tried not to fall flat on my face. The crisp green paper crinkled in my hands for a moment, like the wax paper around candy bars and I really did not want to touch it. I didn't know why. My hands were smeared with chicken slime, my sneakers were caked with chicken shit, and I wanted desperately to go to the restroom. I had only one thought in my mind. How was I going to climb into the truck again if I couldn't lift my legs or move my arms? I still don't know how I did it. I guess I did lift myself to the bumper. I guess I did lift my arms over the wooden slats. And I guess someone did push me from behind and someone else pulled me in. But I don't remember any of that. I remember only that the money in my pocket crinkled again as I went over the slats and that I was relieved to be in this dark pit again.
alone with my pain. At San Lorenzo and San Simon, I walked up our driveway and around to the back door. I pushed off my sneakers before I stepped inside the house. Elmo immediately took an interest in them, but then just as quickly walked away into the darkness. My mother, who hears everything, heard the screen door slam shut and said, Manny, is that you? Dinner's ready. From the hallway, without ever seeing her big brown eyes, I said that I was taking a shower, that I was really tired, and closed the bathroom door behind me. I could hear her walk up to the bathroom door and stop in the hallway, waiting, before she asked, So how was it? What did you do? I had already taken off my shirt, and I was sitting on the toilet slowly removing my dusty, shit-splattered jeans from my legs which were dotted with welts around my thighs and knees. Finally I was naked. My entire, entire body throbbed with pain. Nada. No hicimos nada. Cargamos gallinas. There was a silence on the other side of the door. At least I think there was a silence because I don't remember that I said anything else to her. I don't remember that I responded to anything else anymore. I stared at my swollen thumb. I couldn't move it. Finally, after a while, the hot water seemed to wash the crap away. But really, it didn't. I could smell the chicken shit for days. The second story I wanted to read is an excerpt from Angie Luna. And the protagonist in this story is 21-year-old Victor. And Victor uh, goes back to El Paso. He's in uh, Massachusetts in school, in college. And while he is home for a summer, he falls in love with this Mexicana, Angie Luna. And this love affair prompts a question about identity. Where does Victor belong? Does he belong in the U.S.? Does he belong in Juarez? Uh, Should he follow Angie Luna into Mexico? You know, what is his first language? These are all uh, questions of identity that are prompted by this love affair. So this uh, last part of the story that I'm reading is is a party that um, Angie invites Victor to. And um, so here it is. I finally took off in the early evening after renewing my lease of the Buick with my mother. Be careful, she said. Don't get too crazy with your friends. She didn't know I was going to my first Mexican party. The whole scenario made me a little nervous. All of a sudden, I thought I'd forgotten my Spanish. I didn't know if they would just hang around, drink some beers, or dance. What music would young Mexicanos dance to? I didn't know. I didn't know if I'd feel too young among Rocio's friends, or if they'd think I was just a quasi-gringo invading their territory. I wasn't a real Mexican, and I wasn't an an American either, at least not at Amherst, where everyone just assumed I was an expert on the best place for Mexican food. I was more like a shadow playing both sides of the game. I didn't mind. I knew Angie would be there and we would have a good time. When I arrived at Angie's house, Rocio answered the door, kissed both of my cheeks, and introduced me to a few people who were already sitting on the couch and on the floor. The other women kissed me on the cheek too. I thought this kissing was terrific for its immediate friendliness and sophistication. One of the guys handed me a beer and scooted over so I'd have a good spot on the couch. Angie came in, I stood up, and she planted a big one right on my lips. 
and sat next to me, her hand curled around mine. I was in a semi-state of shock, smiling stupidly in the face of this unabashed, almost bohemian warmth. It was unlike any party I had ever been to. The first thing that struck me was that this crowd was slightly older than me. In their thirties, a few were at the university as instructors, others worked in Juarez, only one other person worked in El Paso, besides Angie and Rocio. Since I was 6'3", I didn't really stand out, at least I hoped I didn't, and no one even bothered to ask how old I was. After the initial flurry of kisses, I felt immediately comfortable being there. The other thing I liked was that they mostly sat around smoking and talked about politics and ideas and about the differences in American and Mexican cultures, about sexual politics and the differences between men and women, and even about sex itself in an affectionate way, not in raunchy terms meant to shock or brag. Sure, I didn't like the smoking part, but even this seemed different than at Amherst. You weren't a pariah if you did it, and if you didn't smoke, you didn't have that look of utter disgust. You just accepted it as being a part of this group of friends. There was also none of the paranoia of being checked out or the strange hope of checking someone else out. Just about everyone was a part of a couple. This seemed the most natural thing in the world. It wasn't a room full of lonelies. Someone brought in a tray full of little tostadas topped with pinto beans and a tangy white cheese. They called them sopes. And there was a huge bowl of guacamole, extra spicy, and another bowl of tortilla chips on the coffee table. More trays of hot food would just suddenly appear in front of the small group. Angie and Rocio kept shuttling to and from the kitchen without missing a beat of the conversation and laughter. After a while, a friend of theirs walked in, Fernando, and he was carrying a guitar which he started strumming and tuning before he sang a Mexican ballad, very softly at first, until the rest of us joined in. I felt a little stupid because I didn't know the words, but everyone was smiling and having a great time, and after the second verse, I knew most of the refrain. Fernando sang for a while. One or two or three would join in. Sometimes he'd just play without singing, letting us decide whether to join in or just listen to the guitar. I laughed a lot with Angie because she would keep whispering all sorts of things in my ear. We were both a little drunk. Everyone else was too. They only got friendlier with each other, arm in arm at the sound of their favorite rancheras, singing and swaying and declaring to the world that they were Mexican and proud of it. There were serious discussions about death and the purpose of life. We also laughed wildly at the simplest things. One of them suddenly stood up and took out papers from his coat pocket. He was the only one wearing a jacket but no tie and demanded silence and was greeted first with hoots of excitement and then with a quiet so unnerving I thought I could hear myself perspire in this alcoholic heat. He recited some of his own written words in a voice at once passionate and then vulnerable, poems about love and affliction, not knowing exactly who you were, poems about courage and even the wretched life of the poor. I saw Angie shed a tear, and others too, including the men, whenever something struck them deeply in the heart. Instead of feeling embarrassed, they were comforted and held by their friends, and I thought I was a part of them. 
After what seemed centuries of time gone by, Angie squeezed my hand and said we had to go. I stood up, kissed the women goodbye, and shook hands with the men. They asked me to come back, and I said that I would. As we drove across the International Bridge, I could feel Angie's head resting on my shoulder, her hand on my lap, her slow and warm breathing. I thought you might be falling asleep, but when I glanced down, she smiled at me and nuzzled my neck. I exited at Airway Boulevard and pulled into the Holiday Inn. Angie said she would wait in the car. When I came back with the room keys, she was combing her hair in the rearview mirror and touching up her lipstick. We drove around and parked facing I-10, right at one of the entrances to the main part of the building. Our room on the second floor at the end of a long hallway was huge, with two queen-size beds, a small den-like area with a couch, a writing desk, a bathroom almost as big as my dorm room, and the perfect quiet we had been looking for. She said it was tremendous, and I agreed. She asked me if I minded relaxing and talking for a while, and I said that I didn't mind at all. We talked about everything. When I would come back to El Paso, and for how long, how many years I still needed to finish my studies, whether I liked her sisters, and how many brothers and sisters I myself had. If she could save enough money to buy a new car, since her old one was giving her so much trouble. How she would do in her new position, and with what allies and avoiding which enemies. Whether I wanted to come back to El Paso forever. I told her I wasn't sure. She reached over and took my hand and pulled me closer to her side. We kissed and caressed each other until nothing seemed to matter anymore. Not our distance from each other, and not the futility of our love, which wandered far away into the deepest part of my mind. Her perfume enveloped me, took me in, and carried me up. I asked her if she wanted to be with me, and she asked me if I could turn off the lights. I held Angie Luna in that room for hours, and I remember the different times we made love like epochs in a civilization, each movement and every touch apex upon abyss. In the luxury of our bed, we tried every position and every angle. I explored the curves of her body and delighted in seeing the freedom of her ecstasy, her desperate whispers and pleas. I told her I loved her, and she said she loved me too. We lay in bed with our limbs entangled in a pacific silence that reminded me of existing on a beach just for the sake of such an existence. I couldn't imagine the world ever becoming better, and for some strange reason the thought slipped into my head that I had grown to be an old man suddenly because I could only hope to repeat but never improve on a night like this. I finally took her home when some, sometime when the interstate was empty and the bridges seemed to lead to nowhere, for they were desolate too. I saw her a few more times before I left for Massachusetts, but nothing shattered me like that particular night, the night of my first Mexican party and my first teary-eyed ranchera, the night when I knew nothing would stop us and then nothing did, and I just slammed into that black wall. I came back to El Paso for Christmas, having written to her, but having received only one brief letter in return. 
she had returned to Chihuahua. Her sister Rocio confirmed this in the empty coldness of a desert winter. Angie had returned to take care of her ailing father when nobody else would. I had never bothered to ask Angie about her mother. And I felt like an idiot. Rocio said that indeed their mother had died many years ago of breast cancer and its neglect. She told me not to feel guilty about it. Most of their friends didn't know either. She told me that Angie had made the decision to go back to Chihuahua freely and without any remorse. Rocio asked me if I wanted to stay for a drink, and I told her I couldn't, but only because I thought I was going to choke. She said she would tell Angie I had stopped by. I thanked her for being so kind. So thank you for um, joining me today on this uh, reading of, of excerpts from The Last Tortilla and other stories. It's uh, my pleasure to do whatever I can uh, for my readers. I really do value you. And, you know, The Last Tortilla has been a wonderful success. As I read this, it's already gone through three editions. So I'm thankful uh, every day for everybody who reads my work and takes the time to send me an email uh, or ask a question. I really do love to respond to all readers' questions. And, you know, I have no entourage. It's simply me and you. And uh, that's how I like it. Um, I'm often asked uh, different questions when I travel across the country to read. Um, One of the questions I'm asked, of course, is how autobiographical are my books and these stories in particular. And it it really depends on the story. The earlier stories um, that were written at the beginning of when I started writing um, fiction, um, The Abuelita, for example, A Rock Trying to Be a Stone, The Snake... Uh, those stories, Angie Luna, uh, those stories are, are more or less autobiographical. I often use a setting that I'm familiar with, Isleta or El Paso, and then maybe change the characters a little bit. Uh, but there are things in there that happened to me or happened to my brothers or my sister and that I heard about and then I crafted into a story. Um, another question I'm often asked um, is... Um, is, you know, why uh, do I sometimes use a lot of bad language, malas razones, you know, <laughs> words like fuck, etc., which of course I shouldn't use, and I have two kids, and so it does matter that I not talk like that in front of them, but um, the reason I use, you know, bad words in my, in some, some of my stories, not all my stories, The Gardener, for example, is a clean story, um, but in some stories I do use bad language, is it simply the way we spoke uh, in Isleta and where I was growing up. So if I were to describe, you know, a, a kid growing up in, in Barraca, in the, the barrio, the neighborhood that I grew up in Isleta, and use Shakespearean English or the, not use bad words, it really wouldn't be authentic to how the language was spoken and how the dialogue was spoken in that place and time. So I do it out of authenticity. I definitely do not do it to shock or to encourage people to use that language. It's simply the way we spoke when our parents weren't around. And it's probably the way your kids speak. <laughs> you know, when you're, you're, well, you know, when, when you're not around. And, you know, I'm a father too. I have two boys. And um, 
I certainly do not encourage them to talk that way. But, you know, and they've read my stories, and sometimes they say, they ask me these same questions, and I tell them, well, that's, I'm trying to be authentic, I'm trying to create characters that are believable, and, um, and that are true to their place and time. Um, finally, I just wanted to say thank you again to everyone who has read my stories on the internet, uh, in books. Um, as any of you who know anything about me, uh, know that I love my readers and I really do try to place as much information and stories and podcast online as possible through my website, you know, sergiotroncoso.com, uh, sergiotroncoso.com, if you don't know Spanish. And I do it uh, because I believe that any reader should out there, whether they have money or not, should have the uh, materials available to him or her and I remember being poor I remember not having a lot of money and um, I it, you know to be able to read something in the in the library for free was terrific and opened my eyes to so many things out there and so I believe I'm just returning the favor to readers out there by providing a lot of information and stories and essays and novel excerpts on my website so thank you again for reading my work and just simply for spending some time with me. And, uh, you know, please uh, keep looking at my website for, for news and my next work. Um, thank you again.